welcome once again to Cinemaholics, the major motion podcast where we talk about the biggest and the best films coming to theaters and streaming online. From the San Francisco Bay Area, I'm John Negroni, film editor for InBetweenDrafts.com. And from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, he's the news and entertainment writer over at Collider. It's Will Ashton. Hey, John. Will, I have a tune for you. A little song. John? I've been working on it. What is that? Skinamarink-a-dink-a-dink, skinamarink-a-doo, I hate this movie and i don't want to wait to tell you it sucks a lot i'm just kidding i actually don't hate it but i thought it'd be funny to like scare you mm. i see like, did you see oh, that no. i was doing the voice of the thing at the beginning there. yeah did i know you, you were doing the voice like, okay. that is not lost on me <laughs> do you think i just thought you were whispering just for the heck of it i don't know maybe you should stop oh. doing that I, I would prefer it if you just had subtitles, no no audible, yep. you know, you know, vocal thing. Sure. Um, yeah. So we originally were going to talk about Magic Mike: The Last Dance. Yeah, I saw week. that movie. And yeah, you did see it. Mm, uh, I actually want to know what you thought about it. So, but I was too busy to see it, and, and part of it was because I haven't seen the first two. So I would have had to binged like the first two movies and then the third one, which I was going to do. But here's the thing: I heard. Mm. Magic Mike The Last Dance kind of sucks. And so I was like, well, look, I am going to watch the first two. I couldn't bring myself to like, I was already short on time this weekend. I did not have a lot of time. And I was like, I need to make a decision here. I need to make some, I need to get my priorities straight. And so instead, we're going to talk about Skinmarink, a movie that you've been trying to get me to watch for like what feels like months, basically. Might be months. I mean, it's been probably a month since I've seen it. You've been itching to talk about it. You wanted to do an yeah. episode around Sundance time, and we didn't do it because I couldn't. Yeah. I couldn't get to the theater. It was one of those things where it was only playing at night, and I right. did not have availability at night. I w- could have watched it in the afternoon. Sure, could have watched it early evening, but no, they they decided we're gonna only play it at like seven thirty mm-hmm. at night. Like, what am I, a teenager? And no. uh, I guess out of spite, you chose to watch this uh, like first thing in the morning. Because, I watched it at 6 a.m. on a Wednesday uh, like morning. Like a maniac. <laughs> I actually think it it was sufficiently creepy at that point of day. I still don't get why you don't buy into my... Like, everybody's different, Well, first of all. Sure. But, like, for me, movies are much creepier in the morning. And I'm not talking about the morning where the sun's shining and the birds are chirping. I'm talking about, like, the sun is still, like, playing footsie with the sky. Like, that is, for me, peak horror time. Because it's like, it's like the you know the movie like the strangers, the creepiest part of that movie is in the morning. You're like, whoa, what happened here? Mm. Uh, I don't. I mean, you do you, John. I'm not gonna you know get in the way I'm of your judge. viewing. Habits. I'm not feeling like I can do me. I feel like I got to do but what I, you tell me to do. Uh, I feel like this is a movie that kind of demands you see it at night, and I feel you chose to see in the morning, kind of despite me and maybe the film. So. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, you, uh, I, I knew, I knew you were going to watch this in the morning. I told you, Hey, <laughs> maybe it was one time. Maybe you could just watch it at night. You had goosebumps on your arms, not from the movie scaring you, but from the idea of like John watching this. Yeah. <laughs> like at the break of dawn. But no, I mean, you just, you chose to watch it when you chose to watch it. And I, yeah. um, I'll have to Make hear about that experience in a little bit. Yeah. Uh, before we talk about Skin Marink, Magic Mike, The Last Dance, I, I heard it's not very good. But I heard, like, I've always heard the first two movies are quite good, uh, especially the first one. So I, I do kind of want to 
throw it to you since you did, you know, manage to go see it in the theater. You sat down for it. You, you were there for the last dance, you know, in the way that I was there for Michael Jordan's The Last Dance. So, yeah, where, where did you land with it? Was it good? Oh, yeah, it is pretty good. I don't know why. Well, what uh, the people heck? Are... Why was I told it sucks? I think it's because people had different expectations for what it was going to be. Because really? each film, I don't know. I, I don't know where you stand on the consistencies of trilogies. Like, I don't know if you care if each film is different or the same. Um, but it is kind of fascinating to watch each of these films in succession because I rewatched the first two. Um and you see, yeah, like the first movie is, you know, it's it's not cynical, but it is, you know, a, a critique of capitalistic culture. It's an American dream story, and it's coming off of the recession, and it's talking about some stuff that was very present uh, in the American landscape in the early 2010s. The opioid crisis comes into it. Whoa, uh, you know I don't like political movies, Will Ashton. It's not a political I, you film. You know that but- I, I just want to eat some popcorn and turn my brain off and not think. And not have an experience that the director intends. You know this. But, I mean, I think, understandably, the marketing for the first film kind of led people to believe it would be more of a kind of romp, uh, you know, more about Yeah, like a raunchy, like, don't you want to see Channing Tatum and Michael McConaughey, or Matthew Mm -hmm. McConaughey, McConaughey naked? And a lot of people were like, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean... I think the first movie was, you know, well acclaimed. It, it made a lot of money, but I think, understandably, some people were like, "Yeah, it's not exactly what I was expecting this to be." So, Magic Mike XXL was kind of more that. It was a road show. It was a lot looser. It was a lot goofier. It was a lot more about the dancing. It was a lot, you know, less plot focused. Just kind of more of a bro ensemble piece, and I think people really responded to that. And uh, you know, it didn't make nearly as much money as the first film, but it's kind of gained uh, more of a cult following. I feel like people really have come uh, to that movie's favor, and uh, I can see. Is I a think, cult following for the sellout movie? You don't hear that, that man. I mean, if you if you look at certain corners of film Twitter, that movie really gets. Uh, uh, a lot of uh, love and uh, reappraisal. I thought so, that was the case for the first movie, and people were like, the second movie's good too, but not as good. That was Which the initial like- response. I think that was like okay. the original critical response. I feel like now the tide has shifted where people prefer the second movie over the first one. And I, I think that was up. the reason why people aren't really digging this third one is because it's because the first one and third one were directed by Steven Soderbergh. He didn't direct the second one because um he was on retirement you know quote unquote uh at that point yeah, but he his was like, iphone broke that's why he's yeah. like well how, how uh, could i what would i, I mean, use yeah i mean but he still shot in edited it so that i remember some people were kind of like did he ghost direct it you know was he like kind of you know like not a director in name but like maybe had some influence i don't really know i re-watching Magic Mike XXL, I feel like he probably didn't direct it, but like, you know, he was still around. Um, but yeah, I think because this is a um, Soderbergh returning to this trilogy, it's more of a direct sequel to the first one. It feels like it's kind of playing more in the vein of that first movie, but also not quite as, you uh, like you said, political. I don't think it's trying to be as... Um, politically conscious preachy? as it yeah not even preachy i just feel like it's it's still about 
stuff, but I think it's not really trying to get bogged down in that. I think that was what people mm. kind of people who are critical of the first one, I think, tend to uh, get a little, um, I don't know, turned off, I guess, for a lack of a better phrase. And you uh, want to be turned by, on by Magic Mike, right? That's uh, why you, turned off by that's some the whole of the point of the movie. You don't want to get turned off. Like, that's not the show. Sure. I think some people get kind of turned off by some of the commentary in the first one. So this one, I think it tried mm. to kind of blend the two. And I, I guess for folks who, um, you know, were expecting kind of more of a, because it's not as funny. It's not as jokey. It's not as silly. It's a lot more straightforward than the second film. So okay. I can see why people aren't really responding to it. It's kind of fascinating uh, to me because I feel like it's kind of similar to how people felt with like Ocean's 12 after Ocean's 11. Where yeah, which I don't know if you, yeah, I, I think is a, you know, I don't usually say this. I, I think that it's annoying to say things are overrated and underrated, but Ocean 12, I think is like one of the few examples where like, yeah, I could buy saying that that's underrated, but I can, I don't know. I mean, underestimated. I, I mean, I certainly don't like Ocean 12 as much as Ocean's 11, but I can see why Soderbergh was just kind of like, I don't want to like just do that all over again. I want to kind of do something yeah. different. And I, and think I respect that's, it for that. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the case here. He, he wanted to do something that was pretty drastically different than the first two films. And uh, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, these are all movies about like honoring female pleasure, about, you know, kind of uh, seeing guys working through this uh, oppressive economic system, but finding ways to give people joy and pleasure at times of, uh, you know, sorrow or uh economic grief and yeah i mean it's this one i don't know i i don't know where i'd compare it to the first two films because i just i'm, I'm still fresh on it but i yeah i had a good time i enjoyed it. it it was funny to see this uh in dolby because it was going to go to hbo max originally uh, and then warner brothers is now trying to get as much money as they can because they're hemorrhaging money so they're just like well we're not going to make any money if we put this on hbo max just put it in theaters and Whoever sees it will see it, but we'll make some money as opposed to no money. So I went from seeing it either on my computer or on my TV to seeing it on like one of the biggest screens I could. <laughs> uh, and I, I mean, I didn't think it suffered for it. I mean, I think it looks very nice. And uh, it was nice to see a Soderbergh movie on the big screen again because it's been a uh, good while. I think the last one was Yeah, let them all uh, talk on the move. Those are Amazon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I would, um, uh, I would recommend it, man. All right. Well, I, look, I'm probably not going to be able to watch it on the plane. Uh, I imagine not. <laughs> any of the Magic Mike movies, uh, probably. Uh, and yeah, for the listeners who don't know, uh, we're recording this right before I'm going to be traveling. Uh, so I'm going to be going to some new countries and I'm going to be traveling the world a little bit. So I'm going to be gone for a while. We're recording next week's episode ahead of time, but there's going to be a week where Will Will's running the show. I still don't know what he's going to do. Um, he might you know, just uh, do a monologue, well, just him by himself reviewing who knows what the hell. Uh, that would be the week of cocaine bear, right? Oh, man. I hope I hope you could pick a really good guest for that. Hmm. Um, and you've talked about maybe do, doing some bonuses if time permits. Sure. Um, I want to do a bonus for uh, for Magic Mike, if I can. I mean, look, when I'm walking around Japan, uh, you know, I want to plug in Cinemaholics, you know, and I want to be- see what's the latest. And uh, that'll be much easier to do if uh, you have an episode out that uh, I got to get clued in. I got to know what this cocaine bear is up to. Like, what kind of bear is it again? But yeah, 
by the way, you're you're in good company with uh, Magic Mike the Last Dance. I took a quick look at the Rotten Tomatoes, and Isaac Feldberg, friend of the show, also is a fan. So, hey, look, maybe I just uh, I was looking in the wrong corners of the internet for for opinions. Clearly, and the, the score, like on Rotten Tomatoes, to be clear, is pretty low. It's like in the 40s. That's why I've heard. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah I'm, I don't know. It, it's the first like negative Soderbergh movie. Well, actually, that's not true because. I think the laundromat was also negative, and I think this is certainly better than yeah. the laundromat. Um, yeah, that move that was. Uh, I don't. Know, I, I think I'm mostly in line with Soderbergh. Like, even if I don't love his films, I tend to, you know, appreciate them in some way or another. Laundromat was one of the ones where I'm just like, this was a, this was a whiff. I don't even think I finished that one. I oh, think uh, I I was a big fan of No Sudden Move, but for of his recent fun. stuff, yeah, uh, and I liked Kimmy too. Kimmy liked, was uh, yeah. Yeah, that was a solid one, and High Flying Bird was quite good as well. So yeah, he's he's made some uh, good stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I was more favorable on Let Them All Talk than you. Um, I know you were, I and mean, yeah, it's, we don't see eye to eye on that one. I guess I don't know. I feel like I I like No Sudden Move. I feel it's also kind of forgettable to me. Um, I did enjoy Kimmy though. I was I was pleasantly uh, taken by that one. That's enough though. Is that's enough of Magic Mike, The Last Dance, mm-hmm. and Steven Soderbergh. Yeah, we got to uh, we got to move on. We got to we got to mm-hmm. talk about this movie here. So, I was just say, I mean, it was no, I was just going to say it's uh, it's appropriate that you brought up uh, Isaac Felber because I was going to reach out to him initially while you were at Sundance to review to review this film because I know he was uh, a big fan of it. I think he talked to the director as well. So, yeah, we uh, had a few friends of the show did see Skin of Marink and uh, had some interesting thoughts on it. Uh, I actually watched, uh, you know, I'll plug uh, Man of the Jedi's review of Skin of Marink today. Oh, okay. because I was kind of curious what she thought because I saw her tweeting about it. Yeah. I was going to say she didn't like it, right? From what I can tell, she was mixed. You know, she was mixed, kind of okay. like, I like what this movie's going for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to talk about it. I got a lot sure, to say. Sure. It's, yeah, it's a divisive film. Uh, I guess it, we it's divisive, from- it's polarizing, and which is a good sign, I think, because for me, divisive, polarizing horror is usually like, that's what I want, because mm-hmm. even if I don't end up liking it, something good usually tends to come out of divisive, polarizing horror movies in terms sure. of like what they influence. And also, yeah. uh, I think the conversation and the discourse tends to be pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, the divisive reviews are fascinating because of uh, kind of the uh, little engine that could story behind the film. I don't know if you're as familiar with uh, like what, what kind of happened as this movie was getting released. Yeah, I read up of, on it quite a bit. And um, uh, you'll know that I did once you see my Letterboxd review, which uh, okay. I plugged in right before uh, we started. But Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, I don't know if this is similar to what you heard, but basically um, this movie was i guess made during the pandemic and it initially yes. premiered at a and horror it puts festival it out there like in the beginning it's like hey yeah we made this we were following COVID 19 guidelines right. it was literally shot in kyle edward balls like childhood home yes uh yeah i'm very very micro budget film like fifteen thousand dollars yeah. and it's yeah, which fifteen thousand dollars and do you know what the latest box office is uh like probably four million Two million, not that million, much. Okay. Jeez, calm down. <laughs> all right, it's not all right. Um, it would probably be four million if it hadn't leaked. But also, if it hadn't leaked, it probably wouldn't have become a viral sensation. Anyway, yeah, you kind of jumped ahead of me there a little bit, but um, <laughs> yeah, initially, yeah, this premiered at a horror festivals online only. There was some sort of glitch yeah, or malfunction. Film festival, not oh, was to Fantasia? be confused with Fantastic Fest. Yeah. Okay. I thought it was a smaller film festival that this happened in. Um, yeah, but the, any and case, the Fantasian Film Festival is because uh, this is a Canadian movie, and this was in that, mm. that festival happens, I think, in Montreal. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, it. Uh, there was some sort of glitch or some sort of malfunction, uh, and the movie was able to be downloaded and subsequently pirated pretty heavily, which yeah. became sort of a curse and a blessing for the film because obviously a lot of people saw it before the filmmaker wanted it to be seen, but it did drum up a lot of interest and attention for the film. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the filmmaker... Uh, it's like an online content creator. I don't know if they're a YouTuber per se, He's but I know they make Redditor. Okay. Um, yeah. I he, know he, there was yeah. like a Reddit thing that he did where people would like submit their nightmares to him and he would make short films based on people's nightmares. Yeah. I mean that, that actually kind of uh, leads into something I was going to say about the film, but I'll uh, talk about that in a bit. Um, yeah, but yeah, I will say that. that yeah, yeah. Um, Presto change, <laughs> <laughs> Uh But yeah, I mean, uh, I think he was tech savvy enough to kind of, uh, you know, lean into that um, building audience and the people who are uh, aware of it. Because like you said, like he was using social media, especially TikTok to kind of drum up or it was a mix of that. And uh, like people were, you know, generally taking clips from the film and, you know, sparking up interest. Uh, away from him but in any case yeah it became a sort of online phenomenon before it even came up uh came out i mean and yeah shutter just used that to give it a uh you know sort of modest but enthusiastic theatrical release and i think it well exceeded uh their expectations because like you know there was this genuine word of mouth and the horror community obviously is very vocal and very uh in tune to like these kind of smaller movies that that drum up a lot of interest and notoriety and uh, controversy so yeah Yeah. i mean it's it's, just a really cool story yeah yeah i mean that's a big thing for me is that like that's one of the main reasons i want to talk about because i just think it's so neat that a movie like this uh was able to kind of you know, beat the odds and get so much notice and interest. But as we're kind of alluding to, I feel like that's kind of, you know, helping and hurting the film in some respect. I was going to say, cause there is a dark side to this mm-hmm. because this could, this could end kind of in a similar way of like what happened to TikTok, like what happened with books in TikTok. Um, so uh, some listeners might be aware of this, but there's something called book talk where there have been like basically authors who have been like writing these books and books and self-publishing them in a lot of cases and people on TikTok get a hold of them and they become viral sensations and like we we saw this kind of like way particularly over the pandemic mostly like in 2020 2021 and it was just this like really exciting thing because like people were discovering books that came out like over a decade ago and these authors were getting this like wave of attention for like these kind of independent books that like just didn't find the readership that they wanted and TikTok and Book Talk it was starting to like subvert the market it was starting to like become like wow this is a really great way to bring attention to books in a more direct way in a more entertaining way to, especially to the you know, Gen Z in particular, Gen Alpha, like the people coming up who are mostly using those apps. The dark side is that really in the last year, we've seen book talk just implode in terms of like, it's been co-opted in a lot of ways. It's been co-opted by these like savvy marketing teams that are trying to break the system and like drum up, like force and manipulate TikTok 
to start to like come up with these like fake sensations. And what's happening is that people are relying on TikTokers less and less for media recommendations for books. And that could happen with movies too. It could lead to some things like being built upon like, oh, we're going to do this big TikTok campaign and we're going to do something really cringy to make this movie happen that's super indie. So I'm kind of dreading that. Uh, It could be years away for all I know. It could never happen. But I do think that there are a lot of producers, a lot of Hollywood folks out there right now, all over the world, really, who are looking at what happened with this movie and are like, this is our moment, you know? And uh, so keep your eyes on that because it's, uh, yeah, it's not something I fully like gravitate toward. I don't use TikTok. I don't, you know, I, I don't really like follow creators who like do the sort of bite size. Like I watched this movie and it scared the, you know, what out of me. And like, I can't, I feel like that's more of like the next generation thing. I feel like I'm just, you know, I, I'm sharing family like guy clips with Matt Serafini. That's where I'm at. Like, that's what we're doing. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm going to choose to be a little bit more optimistic about this because, yeah, I mean, I feel like initially, you know, like something like this, it doesn't quite match it. But I mean, it's it's easy to kind of look at the phenomenon of this and compare it to like the Blair Witch Project or Paranormal Activity. And, uh, you know, it's it feels like it's something that can be kind of more common than uh, it was then because the internet can, you know, drum up a lot of interest very quickly and very prominently. Uh, but, you know, I mean, in that same respect, you know, interest can kind of wane a lot quicker too. And you kind of have to take advantage of the moment when it comes. Like, I feel like people are already kind of starting to move on from Skin and which is why our review is a little late. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm already kind of seeing this with another um, horror movie that's coming up, uh, The Outwaters. I don't know if you've heard about that one, but it seems to be kind of drumming up some similar tension. I don't know if it's a case uh, with TikTok or on social media as much. But um, yeah, I mean, it's just uh, it's an exciting time for horror in general. But I'm really uh, excited for films like Skin and to break into the uh, the popular conversation and, uh, you know, drum up a lot of interest for these very modest but very intriguing films. Yeah, it's an exciting time if you're somebody who likes to use new tech, uh, you know, and in interesting, creative ways. Outwaters, by the way, if you're a Bay Area listener, uh, it's playing at the Alamo Drafthouse in San Francisco uh, this weekend. So uh, might want to catch a late showing if you're a local listener, um, at least Mm. in my neck of the woods. I don't know about uh, Pittsburgh. I don't know what's going on in PA. Uh, we might have some information soon. Mm, interesting, uh, if interesting. I may say okay, so anyway. myself. Um, <laughs> so let's, let's but, set this movie up. Yeah, I was going to say, what did you know going into this film? Very little. Well, so we did publish a review of Skin Rink on In Between Drafts. Um, I kind of like half edited it because I was literally like traveling at the time. I was going to LA and so I was like trying to do it at the airport and a writer was struggling to like find images for the movie. Like we didn't get like a, a press kit or anything. Uh, it was, it was kind of tough to like, just cause like we, we source our images straight from the studio. Um, and the writer, by the way, is Yasmin Kleinbart who did our skin and rink review. Um, and she, uh, she graded it a seven out of 10. Uh, she liked it. But, uh, at the time it was playing select theaters. And so like, I read, I had a hard time. Like I, I was on like the shutter website. I was like reaching out to like IFC films or IFC midnight people that I knew. Cause I was like, Hey, I need help. I can't, I don't have anything for this movie. And we, we want to show, you know, an image of the movie. Part of the reason that it's hard to get like a photo credit is cause, and I got this sense, like once I did look at the images, I was like, are there no people in this movie? I'm seeing feet. 
I'm seeing walls and TVs. And I was like, oh, this is something really experimental. Um, I kind of read through part of the review, but I, again, I didn't want to get spoiled on anything because at the time I was like, oh, we might be doing a review. And I like to stay fresh uh, on, on watching this stuff. Um, so I just kind of did some aesthetic editing and then someone else finished it up for me. But uh, our reviews editor, Aaron Brady. But anyway, the mo- the movie itself, I got the sense that it was like, okay, we're doing something kind of weird here with like color. Mm-hmm. The atmosphere is very creepy. And it's probably going to be like a very unconventional horror movie. That's about all I knew going in. And I knew it was like micro budget, hyper indie, and yeah. it was like a big like t- like TikTok thing. Like that's basically all I knew. Yeah, I mean, uh, it is to me, especially seeing the film, really fascinating that this got a pretty wide release. Like that this played in chain theaters and stuff because it feels like sort of the antithesis of anything that you'd see uh, at your local cinema. Like it's kind of fascinating to me that someone you know. If it's just, if this was still playing in theaters now, like they could go from like Ant Man the Wasp to like this. <laughs> I mean, it was playing in about I just looked it up about seven hundred theaters. Yeah, and two million is pretty good for that. Not amazing, oh, yeah, but yeah. good. No, but I mean that's like, I mean, I mean, I'm sure the director was never expecting this film to play no in seven hundred theaters, which is you know again kind of adding to this kind of remarkable story that's been, uh, you know, continuing the build with this film. Um, but yeah, I mean, like we said, I don't, I, I don't know if that's playing to the film's benefit or to its detriment that it's getting that many eyes and that many people, I think expecting something a little bit different from this. Really? Perhaps? I, I mean, I didn't know what to expect, but I certainly like, I, I kind of got it. Like as soon as yeah. the movie started and I was like, oh, this is that kind of movie. I was like, this is what the deal is. It wasn't like a huge surprise. It wasn't a huge, like, what the heck? I was like, okay, right. yeah. And I think the thing I messaged you was like, is this a movie or a MoMA exhibit? And I stand by sure. that. Um, Cause it's like, it's the most pretentious, unpretentious, like experimental horror film. I think I've ever seen like I, it, it genuinely, and I think it's like, it's one of those things where as I'm watching it, I'm like, man, I really want to meet the guy who made this. He's probably really cool. He's like a really, probably a really cool dude. Uh, and, and it's one of the, and it's, I, I'm really curious too, because he, he apparently did like a, a proof of concept thing for this beforehand called Heck, um, where he had like, cause, you know, filming this in his childhood home was like not accidental. Like this was a nightmare that he had had. And he says that like he had shared that nightmare with other people about like basically these kids are like running around this house at night and there's like a monster or something and they can't escape the house. And as the film proceeds, like you kind of get ideas of what's happening, but you only ever see the walls. You only ever see part of the TV. Everything's always a bit distorted and out of frame. And it's all about the ambiance and the lighting. And it kind of is like being inside somebody else's nightmare, but not nightmare in the way that spectacle usually like drums up, you know, where everything's like all of a sudden like monsters and it's, it's wild. And like, look at that. And this character, it's like way more abstract, honestly. And that's where the polarization comes in because people are watching that. And I think understandably so are extremely bored while watching this movie because I'll say it, it's kind of boring. I think it's really interesting and I'm watching it and I'm like, I really admire what's going on here. I I kept going with it, but I was like, this is kind of boring. This is kind of taking too long. This should be like 80 minutes, not a hundred. 
Um, maybe even fewer than that. And I think the idea, and uh, Amanda the Jedi said this in her video where she was, she was kind of thinking the same thing, but she was saying like, you know, this could be, there could be this argument of like part of the movie is like, it's, it's long because it should feel like you can't escape from the nightmare, which I think is an interesting take, but I, I, I did want to escape, uh, throughout <laughs> when it ended. I was like, thank God, <laughs> finally. Uh, but I did find it pretty creepy. Uh, yeah, but I take it you, uh, you like this one more than me. That's my guess. I would say that's correct. Yeah. I mean, I was fascinated to get your perspective on it because I think it was good that, you know, one of us saw in theaters and one of us saw at home because, um, I don't know, I, I've been getting the sense that, you know, not only have a lot of people been seeing it at home because of the leak uh, and the fact that it's on shutter now, but, uh, because I think people are kind of thinking like, oh, this is a movie, you know, kind of similar paranormal activity. It's like at home. Maybe it's more creepy at home, all that jazz. And I don't know. I definitely get that impression from, uh, you know, watching the paranormal activity movies. I tend to prefer them at home. I think they're a little bit more effective with the ambiance of being in your house. Uh, and to some respects, I feel that way about Blair Witch Project. I think this movie actually benefits from seeing it in a theater. Because you uh, can't get out and you're surrounded I by think- other people. Well, not only that, but I think it's a film that you need to kind of give yourself to. Like you said, like I think it's you're going to get as much out of it as you want to get out of it in some Which respect. is why so- I saw it in the morning. Because look, in the morning, no distractions. Nobody's awake. And it's sure. and again, this is we're talking like 6 a.m. Like it's dark. And I'm certainly there's some light. So I'm seeing like trick of the light and stuff. It was pretty unsettling. It was pretty creepy. If I had sure. watched this at midnight, I wouldn't have been creeped out. People are awake. It's the night. It's like it's night life. I don't know. Whatever gets you into the mood of the film, but uh, yeah, I just I think <laughs> so. Dismiss it. Um, I think it's a type of film that, like, like you said, like the beginning, it's a little slow going. Uh, y- you know, you're not really exactly sure where it's going. It's a lot of static shots of you know walls and doors. And like you said, people's feet and the uh, feet <laughs> uh, and arms and like, you know, it, you're not really getting a lot of, uh, you know, information head on. And it's an easy film to like kind of tune out or pause or check your phone during. Um, and I think it's much better if you just kind of let that all go and just accept it on its own terms and watch it, which I think is That's easier when for you're me. a captive audience. Sure. I think it's easier for me to do that in a theater. So I was definitely very appreciative that it got the theatrical release that it got. And I was fortunate that I watched it in Art House Theater. So I feel like my audience was actually pretty respectful. I, I the reason I, one of the reasons I brought up the device response, I feel like part of the reason people are maybe getting less out of this is because they see it with a full audience of people and like half the audience is getting kind of restless and making jokes during it and probably taken away from their experience. So I, it's, it's definitely an understandable film for like, I can see why some people aren't going to like it. I'm not saying that everyone who dislikes it wasn't trying to get something out of it, but it's a type of film where like, if you want to go into this, not liking it or thinking it's stupid, it's very easy to do so. Uh, I think it's, <laughs> Uh, I think it's more interesting to actually kind of approach it head on and get immersed into it. Uh, and I think if you do so, it is a pretty genuinely evocative and, and creepy film. Uh, for me, though, I guess when I got out of it, part of my thinking was, was this, you know, is it trying to say something deeper or is it more just kind of a, um, you know, concept 
piece where it's like it's more about proving itself and being like a calling card for the director to prove their talents and then do something later i'm not exactly sure which both. it is yeah, i think it's a little bit of both like i think there is I, something I don't think f- it's trying to say anything all that deep i think this is one of the ca- those cases where maybe what it's saying is i just think ball is getting something off of his chest like a sure. deep-rooted anxiety a fear a sort of like lack of connection that he has to his childhood and like the fear he had as a child and how it's so different from the fear of being an adult and him just sort of like getting that out there. Like I, I feel it. Like I feel the honesty in it. And that's why I admire this movie a lot. And I, while I was watching it, I was responding to it. I just was like a little bit like, okay, Mm -hmm. we showed this wall already. If like several times, it's like, I get it. The toilet sometimes isn't there. I, that's interesting. Okay. But do something else please and yeah. and eventually it does like there are some things that happen like midpoint and toward the end where i'm just like what the heck like this is getting now we're getting somewhere now we're doing something um there's sure. a particular like scene or like series of scenes that happens close to the end where i was genuinely like whoa this is this is going a lot harder i was starting to think that it was never going to actually like do anything um mm-hmm. and it does to its credit yeah yeah um but yeah, I mean, I I think this movie taps into that childlike mindset that you're referring to in a way that I feel like other filmmakers have. And I mean, some have been successful, but I feel like a lot of them haven't really gotten me into that place in this way. In the way that like when you are a kid and you happen to wake up at like 2.30 a.m. and you're roaming the house and like... You know, you're, you you figure your parents are in the other room, but, you know, and you recognize the place, but it's also different and you just can't, you know, really make heads or tails of it. And I just feel like a lot of movies haven't been able to capture that feel and mood uh, as effectively as this film does. And I think that's what I really admire about it is that, you know, it, it really does dive head on into being evocative in that way and capturing that aesthetic and doing so in a way that feels, like you said, very purposeful and maybe even kind of cathartic for the filmmaker. But I can see why some folks would want to like kind of write that off as being, you know, like empty or yeah, uh, too, too experimental. Like, sure. yeah, yeah. Like just make a movie and which I'm sympathetic to, but at the same time, I mean, I certainly like have a very like easy personal in with this because it takes place in 1995, which I'm not sure if we even mentioned, um, and so, That's like, when, everything uh, in the movie is very nostalgic, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Yeah, go ahead. And, and like, I, I would say, like, so the, the the one of the kids in it, the the boy, is a younger brother, and he's four years old in 1995, and he has a sister, an older sister, who's a couple years older than him. Like, that, and also, like, kind of, like, the very vague look of the house, which makes it so that you could read that house into all kinds of, like, your own house. Like, I certainly mm. was, like, seeing my like childhood there. Like I was yep. seeing those like blocks that I would play with. I was seeing those like, you know, kind of creepy old cartoons that it was like the only thing that would be on and, uh, and kind of like following my sister around and being kind of scared if something was going on with our parents, like even things going on with like, you know, I can't find something and it's too dark, but feeling like the living room is kind of a safe haven, like all that stuff. I was like, wow. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Well, I I'm there with you. But I, I, I still I still felt a little bit limited 
from mm. from really enjoying it because again it just it just kind of spun its wheels a little bit and i think it was doing it on purpose but i don't think all that successfully for me and it and, mm. and genuinely like there are people who are like this is like the creepiest movie i've ever seen like that's kind of the hyperbole pe- people were saying on tiktok because it's tiktok and uh i think it's far from that i i, I certainly was not like you know freaking out like i wasn't mm. sort of uh like oh man i have to go into work today but i'm so scared <laughs> Uh, okay, so what I thought you were going to do was you're like, okay, it's 1995, and I'm seeing some kids and some toys, Yeah, and I'm the author toy of the Pixar Theory. You know what that means? <laughs> this is a toy story. This is a horror toy story movie? Yeah, yeah. Toy Story should so, have like a horror. If they're going to do Toy Story 5, make it a horror movie. Yeah, I was going to say, go. why do we need Toy Story 5 when we got Skinamarink? There you go. You got a friend. There's in even me. a character from Toy Story three in uh, Skin yeah, yeah. but I won't get yeah, it no, away for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I am similar to what you said about Man of the Jedi, where I think the movie needed to be at long because it's about kind of getting displaced and feeling as though like you don't really know where you are and how much time has passed. And, you know, getting into that kind of creeped out mindset, I think it's very deliberate and very intentional. I think that's much easier, like I said, in a theater when you're not checking your phone and you don't really know how much time has passed. You don't know how long you've been looking at the wall. Uh, And yeah, I mean, I think that is kind of the key to this film's power. And I can see if you're watching at home, you you can like look at your, you know, your watch or your clock and you can see how much time has passed or whatever. But yeah, I think that's why you kind of need to be immersed in it. I know that that's not a way everyone's going to be able to see the film, but uh, I think that's kind of key to it being as effective as it can be. Since uh, I feel like we're kind of wrapping up here, don't have too much else to say myself. Uh, I want to mention Matt Donato, a friend of the show, also reviewed the film for Slash Film, which uh, my heart goes out, by the way. I know Slash Film had a bunch of layoffs today, and so infected some people I care about. Pretty upsetting. Um, but regardless, uh, Matt wrote uh, in his review that he, he also thought that it was uh, a bit too long, but he, he called it exquisitely divisive, the kind of film that will balance zero and five-star reviews. Uh, that said, those seeking an abstract exploration of lights out anxieties by lo-fi means should seek this shot on film looking curiosity that abides by no conventional filmmaking rules. And he's kind of right about that. Cause like it is shot on digital, but it does kind of have that like aesthetic, like where you could easily be like, Oh yeah, yeah that might've been shot on 35 millimeter. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it's very deliberate in its look and style. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, what I meant to say earlier is, I mean, I don't know what uh, the filmmaker has in store next, but I feel like their calling card is to do some sort of film about sleep paralysis. Like, I feel like that would mm. be like, I don't know. I just felt like there's a lot of scenes in here. I'm not someone who like often suffers from sleep paralysis, but whenever I do, I feel like it's been similar to some of the images that you see in this film. And uh, I don't know. I feel like that that's like the the dream there, you know, or the nightmare <laughs> as it were. Well, it's interesting because uh, I again I was reading because I wasn't aware of Ball before this, but uh, he uh, he's he said that one of his main influences is Chantal Ackerman and you know uh, Gene Dealman, of course, like apparently is not the best movie of all time, according to certain lists. And uh, it is kind of interesting because like, you know, Ackerman's films were a lot like that. Gene Dealman in particular, just sort of like using an extended sequence to deliver a very simple point in, uh, in an uncomfortable way, but on purpose. And so, yeah, I kind of see that. I kind of see him in his next movie, 
you know, kind of staying true to that and using something like, uh, you know, what is a very not realistic, but sort of like an experimental way to, to display sleep paralysis or insomnia or something that can kind of like really scratch that itch. Cause that's a good, that's a good horror thing to put po- to poke at. I'm sick. Of, I'm sick of movies about horror movies about grief. I don't need horror movies about grief. I like that this movie isn't like, this is a horror movie about divorce or a horror movie about one parent leaving. Like you can read into that, but it's, it's doing more. It's, it's kind of being a little bit more like uh elemental about its, yes. its fears instead of just telling you what it is. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I think been a big part of its appeal is that it's kind of going back to the basics where I feel like a lot of these horror movies yeah. are trying to, you know, either be like ironic or cute, you know, going off the influence of scream or, you know, like you said, like kind of like laying the metaphor on thick or, you know, uh, you know, make it very obvious what it's trying to say and, and therefore, you know, maybe earn more critical appraisal. But yeah, I think that this movie, I, I would certainly love to see more movies like this that honor that sort of ambiguity that kind of play into, uh, you know, a number of things, but don't mix it so apparent and obvious throughout and don't have like lead dialogue that just explains the whole point of the film. Uh, and I say that kind of ironically uh, after I praise Doc at the cabin, but that's neither here nor there, I suppose. <laughs> All right. It's hey, look, it's definitely one of those movies where I personally, I like talking about it and thinking about it more than I like watching it. But I didn't see it in the theater. I don't know if it would have been better. Uh, I, uh, I do yeah. think that, you know, watching it at home had its own appeal. I think like the first Paramount at- Paranormal Activity, I saw that in the theater and I had, I think that was the best way to watch it for me. Part of it mm. was because it was an empty theater. It was kind of creepy. It was a midnight mm. showing on like a Thursday. And oh, it was just wow. me and my girlfriend at the time. And there were, two other, there were two other people in the theater, but it was a big theater. And at the very end of the movie, like I think the one one of the the guys was just like oh hell no (laughs) it was something like that where it was like really funny um and that was an experience that was like a okay cool like that was fun did my ears deceive me or did you say you watched a a film a horror film at midnight that was young and stupid wow uh (laughs) Uh, well hey look paranormal activity three which i think is my favorite and probably the best paranormal activity movie i did see that at home I saw, oh, I saw that at that a friend's one. house. I saw that one in theaters. See, I saw the first Paranormal Activity at home. So we were topsy-turvy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what was going on there. Um, although I don't know if I... It might have been the second time I watched it. I don't remember. But I yeah, mm. I saw it with like a group of friends. And it was like... That was like 2 a.m. And that was pretty sick. That was pretty sick. That, pre- that's pre- a good one to watch at home. Yeah, I, don't, um, I, I definitely think this movie is creepy, though. I, don't, I think you're underselling the spookiness of it. But... Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I found it to be pretty chilling. Well, let's play the Rotten Tomatoes game. Let's see what other critics oh, have to say. Before I forget, uh, my friend Jess, hey Jess and I, when we saw the film, we made these bingo cards I wanted to show you. Um, bingo card? Uh, yeah, we, <laughs> There's we an made bingo, bingo card. card here. Uh, mm. we were trying to predict what the, what would happen in the film. Neither of us got bingo. Um, no, but man. I got pretty close. Did you get close? Yeah, yeah. I can read you some of the things I predicted would or wouldn't happen I in the film. Know. I won't I won't specify which happen or which don't happen if anyone hasn't seen the film yet, but I wrote a uh, kid cries, cat, kid says creepy shit, we see the monster, <laughs> TV in the background playing old 70s show. We thought it was going to be in the 70s. We were a little mistaken there. Uh creepy noise. It kind of looks like the 70s. 
Someone says skidmarink. Basement. Something flies at the screen. Police shows up. Door closes by itself. People walk out of the theater. Movie starts. That was the centerpiece. Uh, abrupt end. Audience makes rude comments. Jump scare. <laughs> Kid yells for parents. Child toy <laughs> makes loud noise. Sinister closet. Someone dies. Only see parents' feet. Ball rolling in the dark. Demon voice. Dead animal. And 70s pop culture reference. Again, thinking that this movie took place in the 70s. I'm actually, I'm kind of surprised you didn't get bingo. A lot of those were pretty, pretty good. Almost spot on. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, it well didn't work out. Um, do you want to read, you want to hear some of hers or do you want to go on to, uh, uh, Rotten Tomatoes game? Let's play the game. Yeah. yeah. Let's, let's, uh, let the listeners wonder. All right. All right. We have 110 reviews counted. So will, what is your guess for the Rotten Tomatoes score? I assume you have not been spoiled on it. Uh, no, I don't think I have. I have been spoiled for next week's episode, but we can talk about that in a bit. Uh, this one, that's interesting. I, I, I think this is going to get. I can see this being very lopsided as far as like critics are probably very favorable on this one. Audience is probably mixed and negative. Um, but I'm going to say critic score is 75%. Hey, that's not, that's not far. That's not far. It's just a little bit lower. Just a little bit lower. Do you think it's hmm. in the upper 60s or low 70s? I'm going to say 69. Nice. Nah, 71. You went, you went with uh, not, not your head or your heart. You went with the other thing. <laughs> uh, 71%, which is pretty good, uh, for, especially for something so divisive. Uh, what about the audience score? We have 100 plus verified ratings. What's your guess there? Uh, I'm going to imagine it's pretty low, but not like astronomically low, but just low compared to the critic score. I'm going to say 46%. 46? That's actually not far either. Uh, so you're two off. You think it's 48 or 44? I'm going to say 44. It's 44. You uh, you were pessimistic, and I get it. Uh, we don't have a cinema score for this one, but we do have Letterboxd, of course. 80,000 watches. That's the highest we've had, actually, in a little bit. Like I don't think Infinity Pool had that much. I think this is around what Knock the Cabin had when we reviewed it. But, okay. On Letterboxd.com, out of five, what do you think the average rating is? Uh, I'm going to say... Um... 3.4? 3.4 is your guess. Not 3.0. 3.0. Oh, okay. It's a little bit. The letterbox community, they're not they're not all singing skin of a rink a dink a do. Some of them are some of them are telling this movie to shut up. Hmm. Well it seems like this one it's been kind of a letterbox favorite, right? Like a lot of people have been logging on letterbox. I mean, that's what I'm seeing. Uh, lots of hearts yeah. and everything. But I, yeah, I mean, I'm seeing um, just on my friends list, you know, I'm seeing some twos, twos and a half, but also lots of fours and threes and a half. So, yeah, pick your poison. But uh, yeah, that'll do it for this week's episode of Cinemaholics. Thanks so much for listening. And uh, thanks so much for all of you who do watch movies, uh, horror movies in the morning. And you sat through this and you you grit your teeth against Will Ashen's harsh judgments. I get it. I'm right there with you. Um, but, you know, yeah, yeah, what are you going to do? You know, we can't we can't change him. He can't change us. And uh, that's how it's going to have to stay. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, from the Internet of California, I'm uh, John Gurney. And again, people can enjoy the films however they want, despite my judgment <laughs> and reservations. Uh, and for the Internet of Pennsylvania, I'm Will Ashen. See you next time.